0: Ladies and gents, triathletes, musicians, people who love music, business, everything, welcome to another episode of the Stupid Questions podcast. Today, we are going to be talking with Mark Allen. Um, He is the one of the, if not the greatest of all time in the triathlon world, six-time world uh, champion for Ironman distance. Um, He has won gold in... I forget the name of the race, but it's an Olympic distance. That's kind of how he got his big career start and got his name on the map. Um, today, we just talk about his life, his past, things he's been through. We talk about overtraining. Uh, we talk about how I need to take longer off seasons, and everybody should. Um, we talk about a lot of awesome things. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Mr. Mark Allen. Well, again, thank you so much for jumping on. Um, a way that I like to always start these podcasts is just to ask kind of a third person question to the guest. So for you, I'm gonna ask, who is Mark Allen?
1: <laughs> well, I you know, it's funny. I think I'm pretty simple. Uh and one day the number of years ago, this woman goes, He's he's so complex. Um, I'm, I'm complex. Yeah. But I, I think uh if I I've thought about that over the years and, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of sides as we all do. Uh, sure. some sides are public, some sides I don't let out except for my family and friends and, yeah. um, sort of who I am has evolved over the years. Like when I, when I grew up, I was, I was very shy publicly, you know, like I, yeah. I wasn't a socialite. I wasn't like the center of attention, even though I wanted to be, in the mix with everything you know how it is when you're a kid yeah i was i was always shy to be around the you know the popular kids and i was like and physically i was small so i was like the the last guy to get picked for the uh you know the softball team when they line us all up and the captains would Mm -hmm. pick sides you know same really uh you know good for your social your uh, self-confidence right so anyway and i was very very shy to uh sort of talk in public like i had a debate class in seventh grade of all things and when i had to get up and talk i was terrified just terrified you know i mean it's a class right and it's your friends but still and so it's just ironic that you know i turned into this world-class athlete so physically things evolved and changed and something that was hidden in there came out i was uh you know, I give corporate talks, I give talks to athletes, you know, I'm pretty comfortable in front of people now, obviously. Sure. And uh, Trained skill. It's, it's just fun to do it now, as opposed to being something terrifying. It's yeah. really fun to do. And um, I also, <clears throat> you know, I have a, a, I guess you'd say a spiritual side. I grew up in Palo Alto, right across the street from Stanford University. And, and when I was in high school, that was when the Vietnam War was going on. And Oh yeah so there were there were a lot of war protests and it, there were um uh you, you know it was kind of like on the tail end of the i guess you'd say the 60s so it was it was cool to look into meditation or look into things that were spiritual and, and um we, you know we didn't we weren't preoccupied with tiktok and instagram yeah. and you know all that kind of stuff yeah, so it's a
0: different place i
1: think that sort of lent itself uh To looking at all sides of things no matter what it is that i was doing so when i got into the sport of triathlon um you know i i came into it as an ex swimmer and as an ex swimmer you know i was i swam 12 years competitively from time i was 10 all the way through the end of college and i was pretty mediocre as a swimmer you know i never qualified for olympics olympic trials never made it to you know national championships none of that stuff and so i kind of thought that my genetic toolbox was pretty pretty lean you know and and so (laughs) but right away I saw that there was a a real direct relationship between the thoughts I was telling myself in a race and what was what took place Mm. in my performance and and you know the example of that is the very first triathlon I did I I came off the bike in in fourth place which was mind-blowing because I thought wow you know yeah. here I am. How did I do that? <laughs> yeah. how, did I, how am I off the bike in fourth place? I'm not that good of an athlete, but yeah. So I was running along and, this, and in the first mile, this guy passed me. And, you know, as a swimmer, if I got, if somebody got like a stroke ahead of me, the, the race was over. I'm like, he's going to win. I'm not going to win. You know, I, it was like written in stone. Right. And so this guy passed me. And so my, my swimmer's tape started to go yeah. and you know he passed me now i'm in fifth and probably 10 other people are going to pass me and something inside just said you know shut up like yeah, stop that is it really that set in stone and and i just got real quiet and uh all of a sudden i realized i was staying with him like he wasn't putting any time on me and then i went on and i passed him and i ended up finishing in fourth place mm. And the and the three guys who finished ahead of me were three of the best at that time. Dave Scott won the race. Um, Scott Molina, who ended up winning Ironman once, uh, was second. Scott Tinley, who who won Ironman twice, was third, mm-hmm. and then I was fourth. And so, they kind of had names and reputations, and so everybody's like, "Who's this guy?" Mark Allen we finished right behind those guys.
2: Yeah.
1: And so that was sort of like the news of my name. But the real, the real impact of that race was seen again, like. If I'm quiet and I stop that internal chatter, maybe maybe something amazing can happen. And so that Mm. sort of became a a seed of something that that grew throughout my career and that I I actually worked on. You know, a lot of. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling here, but a lot of athletes, you know, they they get into they're going into a race, especially a big race, and they kind of are hoping that they can deal with themselves You know, in the race, especially like an Ironman, you have a lot of time where you're you're not competing against anybody else. You're competing against that sort of lesser side of yourself that is trying to find an excuse to slow down, (sighs) give up, you know, stop, whatever it is. Um, And I, I act kind of actively worked on trying to be prepared going into the race, into the races to deal with that as opposed to hoping that I could once I got there. Yeah. So.
0: So, wow, we touched on a lot. Um, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like I got a lot of your personality in that, but I'm curious, the deeper, like you seem very observant and analytical, especially introspectively. Is that something that you felt like, or you feel like, or you understand was part of nature or nurture in growing up? Was that something, because you mentioned spirituality, like with your family, how did those pieces coincide to like bring about who Mark is today?
1: Well, I guess if I look at my parents, they were kind of both, of the, each one had both of those sides or one, each one had one of those sides. So like, you know, my, my dad was, he was, he was a doctor. He was very like analytical and, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing. It, Measured. And my mom uh, kind of had that more spiritual side, like she's, she's a Buddhist and, you know, so I w- was sort of exposed to, um, you know, sort of, I guess you'd say alternate ways of thinking and approaching and looking and, and, and relating to to life itself. And, and I also saw that, you know, triathlon, yes, it's a sport. You have to be very, you have to be analytical and sort of, um, uh, sort of process oriented, you know, like you can't just Mm -hmm. go, gee, what am I gonna do today? Huh? I don't yeah. know. What do I feel yeah. like doing? You know, I'm gonna just like do nothing because you know, like That's I'm not in the mood to train today. Well, no, you know, I had a I had a pretty pretty uh set out approach. Like in, in the beginning of, of each season, I pretty much you know, I would set all of my races so I knew where I was going to be ending up at key points throughout the year. And in my mind, I kind of laid out the progression to get each to each one of those as best as I could with the big goal at the end of the year in mind. And, um, and then within that, I knew that I was going to have to sort of deal with myself as a person and, uh, be prepared to go to, go to places inside myself that maybe I hadn't even discovered yet to pull out what was needed to have great, great races, great performances. And, you know, the thing that sort of, know a lot of people look at me and they go wow you're like a you're like an amazing competitor you know and Mm -hmm. i go i am not i'm not competitive in this in the sense of i want to beat somebody else i am competitive in the sense of wanting to improve my my own performance yeah like as a kid you know like i said as a swimmer i never did anything that was newsworthy you know so what, it, But it, swimming was super fulfilling for me because if I could get, you know, two tenths of a second faster and 100 back or, you know, drop half a second in 200 IM or whatever it was, that was really cool. And that was really fulfilling. And nobody else was gonna get anything out of it other than me, you know? And so there was that aspect in, in my training in, in triathlon. You know, each, each day was kind of like, let me see if I can get myself A little bit more fit be more efficient uh recover better you know get faster get stronger gain more endurance gain more skill on the bike and in climbing descending you know whatever it was and so there were all these pieces that were just like this big puzzle that were really fun for me to put together uh so anyway uh, you know i think that sort of afforded me the the ability to kind of have a what i th- what I thought was a pretty healthy relationship with the sport yeah. you know a lot of people <clears throat> their their motivation is driven by absolute performance in relation to everybody else yeah. and um you know when you're when you're a professional and you're at the top top of the sport people emphasize that like you know you yeah. get fifth sixth seventh tenth nobody even really says anything you get yeah. first second third people start to say stuff uh, and yeah. But and so and a lot of athletes can sort of um, be obsessed with that pressure and be obsessed with that first, second, third, you know, setting a a, setting a record, winning a race, and you know, that's such a slippery slope because somebody else just might be better than you on the day. And so, how do you how do you sort of put your racing in in a box that still has meaning and fulfillment for you if you don't win? and i and i see that a lot now like um via social media yeah athletes give their own assessment of how their race went and if they don't win or they get second or the, yeah. or maybe they you know if their per- performance is less than they, they had hoped for they post the picture and they give this string of sort of reasons or excuses or Uh, of why it happened why it didn't turn out the way they felt like
0: almost you need to give an explanation
1: yeah they give an explanation or or they try to um put it in a place where they're okay with it for you know like publicly put it in a place where i'm okay with it you know i mean i learned some things and blah 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 which is true but it's like oh good god you know whatever happened to just going home and sort of like stewing for a few days and you know then kind of going, okay, what did I get out of that race? What did I learn? Is there anything that I can improve on, because of what t- took place there? And, and so that—that's kind of where I was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, it's—it's it's a different world for the for the pros now. But I think you know the essentials of what can bring meaning, meaning and fulfillment. Whether you're a pro or or an age grouper is is always the same. You know, I I I coach athletes. I it's on a, I use a platform called TriDot, and um, you know when an athlete has a bad race, quote unquote, I say you know the only bad race is one that you don't learn something from. Mm. So whether you hit your mark, whether you fall short, if you don't learn something from that race, then you've really missed the gold of what racing can do for you and how it can transform you you know i got first place yay you know yeah two two years down the road you're you're gonna forget about that but if there was a kind of a life lesson that you learned in that race that will come back and you'll use that over and over and over and over throughout your entire life
0: yeah i feel like for um most of my biggest takeaway from races are or i should say when i do race it has a way of really waxing off all of the I guess kind of the BS that you think that you're like covering things up that it just gets right to the emotional core of like you realize, oh, wow, I totally know why I'm crying at the finish line. It's not necessarily (laughs) had a bad race, but it broke me down enough to realize I made these string of mistakes and now I need to like face them. So Mm. I think sport has, yeah, a lot to, to do in the mental aspect of breaking down those walls. And it's really like a counseling session. Only mm-hmm. you go in there and it, it just defeats you and you have no choice but to like finish. And then when you get to the finish line, when you have no blood sugar, your salt's way low and you realize you're just a mortal human being. For me, I'm like, yeah, here's all my issues. Here they are. Let's write them out because they're very clear at this moment. So <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. yeah um, So I'm curious, um, I was trying to ascertain whether you would take more after your father in the um, doctor, analytical side, or your mother, and the spiritual side, and you seem very well balanced. Do you think that you are more like one than the other?
1: Not really. I, yeah. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm a bit of both, and I feel like I'm that in all aspects of my life. Like most people, yeah, on, on the outside, see me and they think, "Oh, you're like this serious, quiet guy," you know? Yeah. And that, but I've got this ridiculous side too, like you know that. Don't we all? you know yeah you know (laughs) that like sometimes i just get in the get on a roll with goofing on people and or goofing on situations and life can just be like a a seed for a monologue you know what i mean and so and most people don't see that right and so uh but yeah as far as if you're talking about that analytical sort of spiritual whatever it, it feels i feel like i have pretty much equal side to both and, but isn't that kind of how, how you, how you can sort of get the best out of life without being um, obsessed with life in a sense,
0: yeah,
1: you know, and, and I, and I kind of saw that like, even in my training with the people, a lot of the athletes that I competed against or was training around, you know, I would, I would do a, a big training day and I'd come home and then when I came home, I was done, you know, I didn't sit around and obsess about what I did and what's going to come up tomorrow and how it's going to affect everything. You know, I just came home and just lived life and a lot a lot of the athletes would come home and they'd look at what happened in the, in the training and they'd think about it and they're analyzing and they're planning it. And so they never got like that mental break from, mm. from the training. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of recovery in, in my opinion, uh, and, and, well, let me back up even more. Recovery is, one of the, the most important aspects to any, any training plan, you know, if, if you're upping your, your, your training game to get better, you've also got to up your recovery game so that you yeah. can actually gain the benefit sure. from what you're doing. Um, and if you're uh, p- and part of that recovery is just letting your mind sort of be at ease. Yeah. If you're, <clears throat> if you're do your workout and you come home and you're relaxing on the couch, you're letting your body recovery re- recover right <clears throat> but if you're sitting there scrolling through instagram and, and you know like stressing. TikTok, and your your mind is just going <laughs> like this you're not letting your mind recover and you know there's those neurotransmitters that have to replenish and, and just uh, just to allow yourself to be in that state where you're you're kind of like not doing anything for a little bit i think is such an important part of Mental recovery—it's not mm-hmm. just when you sleep, when you can let yeah. your—you can sort of recover your mind. And if you think about it, <clears throat> you know your your body doesn't do anything without your brain, right? Mm-hmm. So if your brain's exhausted, your body's not going to perform at the same level mm-hmm. that it could had you given your your brain a break. So anyway, back to my days of competition. When I came home from workouts, I was. I just kind of chilled, you know, I I didn't obsess about it. And so I let my mind sort of recoup also and regroup. And, um, you know, in a sense, just being quiet is a spiritual state. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, it's not like you have to go then do something uh, structured in a spiritual sense. Like, you know, okay, I'm done with my workout. Let me meditate. You you can just like if you just yeah, if you're just quiet, that's you know like you've probably experienced this like maybe you're maybe you have a something a problem that you're trying to solve or a situation you're trying to resolve and you can't come up with the answer for it and you're thinking and you're trying to figure it out and then you go outside and you're you're just walking you know going to watch the sunset or something like that and you're you're not really thinking about it and all of a sudden like oh wait i know what that answer is Mm -hmm. and that's you know, that's sort of that quiet, spiritual aspect of who we are as people. Yeah, And, uh, so very simple, but also mm-hmm. very powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. So I, I have a life coach, I guess. he's a friend mentor, was a professor, but I've since kept in touch with him. And, um, I've been through some crazy stuff in my past. So in, you know, in, as I gained more leadership roles and growing life, I thought, well, you know, I pay for coaching for triathlon and, I even coach people on that, but I, I probably should do some of the stuff that's more focused on like leadership aspect of what growth looks like. Cause I've done the mental counseling I've done, you know, in between here and the moon of everything. Um, but anyway, one of the things that we, I came up with, with, uh, this mentor slash coach was in the mornings, um, cause I'm a Christian. So I, I'll try to spend like devotional time, like literally going somewhere by myself, being quiet and, 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 some type of meditation or something like that. So recently I've been starting going on my porch in the mornings and writing down just like some thankful for us and not just like I'm thankful Mm -hmm. for the day, I'm thankful for my food, but like really trying to hone in on things that I truly take for granted. And one of them this past morning was just, I'm I'm almost, I'm 90% deaf in one ear, but being thankful that I can hear because I can hear the, you know, the crickets going and the birds singing a little bit. And, you know, you've got just the light breeze Mm -hmm. and it's fall time here in the South. So it's really pretty. Um, and a lot of the stress I was carrying going into that moment from the day before and then leaving from that moment, it was just, it was something I was like, man, I need to do this more often because it's, mm. I, I can't even put necessarily to words of how it does it, but it gives a sense of peace and calm that I don't need to stress over every little thing once I move forward. Cause I can notice the birds singing as cheesy as that sounds. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I, was, I think I'll just relate a little bit to what you were saying. I think it's true.
1: yeah, yeah. That's that's very similar to kind of how I start my days. I, I've studied shamanism for years with a gentleman, Brant Secunda, and um, one, you know, there's just simple practices that I do very, the very first thing in the morning, and it just kind of, like you said, it sets you into that sort of peaceful place mm-hmm. where you have a sense of gratitude. And um, you know, the other day I was, I was just. I was whining to myself about my life, right? Like all the little things that yeah. aren't working out and they're not happening when I want them to and, and I've got to do to get to yeah. somewhere else and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know what? Hold on. You're 65. You're, you're basically healthy. You know, you have a house. You're full. You've had enough food. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you're going to be... 70 or 75 or 80 or 90 or whatever it is and your body's going to be breaking down and the next thing you know you're going to be dead and as you're at that end point you're going to look back and go what were you worried about this is the real deal right here you know and, and it just really it shocked me like mm. yeah i have my little picture things that 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 i'm i can whine about but in the big picture thank you yeah you know, thank you that i just i have a good life, I'm having a good life, and I don't really have any really big problems, thankfully,
0: yeah
1: you know, like you said, you set that gratitude and it it sounds cheesy and and maybe simple, but
0: a little Disney. You know if
1: that's part of the practice, like what am I grateful for right now? It helps you step back and go, Oh yeah, you know yeah even even if stuff is lousy and there's things you're having to deal with that are super challenging look you know you i get myself to do this when i'm in those moments i'll look back at some of the other stuff that i have been challenged by and i realize first and foremost you and everybody listening and me have made it through 100 of all the challenges that we've had in our life up to this point mm-hmm. we have not failed at any of them we've made it through it somehow and out of those challenges like a, like a race we it, you know, it's a waste of time if we haven't learned something or gained something from it that helps us in the future. If I look back, I can see, wow, that strengthened me in ways that I never would have been able to be strengthened had I not had those tough moments. Yeah. And there's there's a real uh, gratitude you can gain from that as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. It would be really neat to have, to do like a large study of People who are f- practicing gratitude in the mornings and then not, and measure their physiological just outputs for the next six months doing something crazy is like an Ironman training. Cause yeah, I, I guarantee that it would have a positive effect on, like you're saying, recovery and all those things. And maybe we should delete TikTok. You mentioned TikTok a few times. I'm thinking <laughs> you don't like TikTok, but
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm like anybody else. I, 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 I start scrolling and, and I, the next yeah, thing yeah. I know, I can be scrolling forever. And then I think, what did I? Get out of this garbage. Yeah. It's just, a, I mean, it's cool in one sense because you, you can see, you know, people that are super talented doing whatever it is or things mm-hmm. that are entertaining or things that are funny. But what did it do for me? Yeah. Other than waste the last 30 minutes.
0: You know, it, and not to diverge too much from the topic of the podcast, but it's interesting to me how a lot of these companies, uh, the tech companies, we've become so... Um, just versed in like how patternized the human experience and behavior is that we can make algorithms that we know how to even trick ourselves. People that create the algorithms, they'll get there and they'll just be doing this all day long. And I had this realization the other day when I was thinking about this, it was that, you know, sometimes I look at myself or like the human experience and it's such a deeply complex thing. But then I realize also we are deeply habitual and incredibly predictable in all, in all that we do. And so it's like kind of a humbling thing too. Like we are, I think, fearfully and wonderfully made. But at the same time, we're so simple, and then we can trick ourselves yeah. into doing this whole like thumb scroll thing. But anyway, I don't want to diverge too much. I just think it's really fascinating. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and we're, we're habitual, uh, and we do the same things over and over and over. And, and you know, we get uh, we get comfortable with those things that we do over and over and over even if they're negative patterns and mm-hmm. and that's why um change can be so difficult because even if it's a negative pattern it's something we're familiar and comfortable with and if we axe that out of our lives there's that unknown feeling like <gasps> what am i going to replace it with how, how am i going to serve how what's my life going to be without it even if it's a negative thing um yeah <laughs> one my, my one of my last flights i was flying home and uh as i was as we were coming into land you know how it is you uh, it was in in the san francisco area so you know I, i'm looking down at the at the beautiful san francisco mm-hmm. bay but then i'm also seeing this sea of houses and it was getting towards sunset and i thought oh my god we're like rats in a cage we we uh, we do our thing all day. We're outside, you know, we're, we go to work, we do whatever. Awesome. And then we all put ourselves in these little boxes and lock the door. We put ourselves in a cage at night. Uh, you know, our cage is a house. <laughs> and we're happy locking, to do yeah. that. And nobody has to force us to. And we go in our, our own cage. We don't go in anybody else's cage. And I thought, we're like we're like trained little rats. It's It was like the f- oddest feeling. Yeah. I don't know why I'm telling you that. But like, I'm oh a, just a trained rat. I'm yeah. Like, Ooh, let me go in my cage at night. Ooh, this is great.
0: <laughs> yeah, humans. Yeah, we're we're interesting creatures for sure. And it's interesting you were talking about the um, just like the habits. So my um uncle-in-law, I guess my wife's uncle, he um, he was the only American in Rwanda during the Rwandan genocide. So he mm-hmm. has a fascinating story about what happened and you know the trauma he experienced and watched many people experience. And he goes back now. And he's, you know, t- told these amazing stories about how, for example, if someone killed your closest family member in front of you. And then years later, you're having reconciliation with that person on a level where you can embrace them in a hug. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he- hearing him talk about the, that cult firing to rewire you, like neural pathways to get back to a place where you can learn how to forgive and, and work through something like that traumatic was just. It really eye-opening to me because you know sometimes I it's easy for me to hold a grudge against one of my family members or someone on the street because they ran me to ran me through a red light or whatever it might be, and I just realized like yeah you know, it takes extreme mental fortitude to try to do something like that, but when you do it, it it's the most rewarding thing in the world, and mm. I I can't even compare my experiences with something like the Rwandan genocide, but hearing how that refiring or refire to rewire like the different just habits we have going on upstairs is it is, is was a powerful thing to me mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah you know i everybody has a past everybody has something that's taken place that can either hold them back or like you said if you can let go of it and it, it doesn't change the past mm-hmm. you know that's something that that brant my teacher says, he goes, you can't change the past. You never know what is going to happen in the future. All you have is right now. And so it's like, where, where do you want to place your focus right now? How do you want to live your life right now in this moment?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, it's like, and, and you no, know, just hearing that brief story of, of your, your uncle-in-law that's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, I really don't have a problem to complain about. Yeah, you know, I I haven't morning? seen my best friend killed in you know in a genocide, that kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and <clears throat> and the, but the thing is, you know, no matter what problem you have, it's the biggest problem that you have. Yeah, you know, and and so not that, I mean, clearly, there's very few people who are who are at the the top of the list of bad things that have ever happened to them. And that's not a list you want to really want. You don't really yeah. want to be on that. Yeah. You don't want to win that, that, that prize. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, no matter how big or small your problems are they they are your problems and they're, they are the things that you have to deal with and to resolve and to get mm-hmm. beyond. And, um, you know, I, I really think about that, like, Do do I want to let a negative thought, a negative experience, hold me back from a a positive moment now that I could have if I didn't let that affect me? And that Mm. I had, you know, that was something that kind of had to that that evolved when I was in the races. You know, I would have difficult moments and and things would hurt, you know, like my legs are killing me. I've got blisters. I'm too far behind. I'm not as close to the front as I want to be. Right and then i and that's where i would have to like go back to that you know that quiet space and get my mind to just be quiet and you you, you i could just feel that sense like when i stop that internal chatter then those negative experiences of, of those negative thoughts stopped holding me back from having the best race that i could have in that moment and my best race on any given day may not be the best race i could have on another day but it's the best i could do today and that's that's the most important thing like you know yeah i I do that now when i'm when i'm sitting at my desk and i'm working on the computer and i'm starting to see myself whining about the things i've got to deal with and take care of and, and and i'll just ask myself am i Am I the best version of myself that I can be right now?
0: Hmm. hmm. Yeah, I'll make you sit down and really contemplate. Who am I? What am I doing? How's my attitude? Are yeah. you married?
1: Uh, I am. L- l- let me just say, I'm I'm life committed with uh, uh, with a woman. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you're life committed with a woman. So you still get that dynamic. Um, I was just gonna ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was gonna ask how she like. If, does she um help you? see when Mark's being a grumpy person in that day because I was, I was just thinking like there's nothing that really shows me who I am like my own wife sometimes in the mornings or when I'm doing something and then you know through her kindness and not deciding to die on a hill I go out on a bike ride and I think about it an hour later I'm like oh I should apologize for that because that, that was needless.
1: Oh yeah you know re- it, relationships are the best learning environment you can possibly be in both for somebody reflecting back to you where your shit is. And then Mm. also for learning how to um, accept somebody just for who they are and not try to go, Oh, the relationship would be better if they would change and be this way. Yeah, you know, and then also being able to share what's really important with you with you and and for you in, in that relationship and in relationship. And yeah, yeah for sure i mean that's a whole that's a whole thing right
0: yeah yeah you could have a three-hour podcast on that one um so i do want to shift gears a little bit yeah. uh so i was talking with a friend so you know greg bennett i'm sure
1: um i know greg bennett great guy
0: yeah so he was kind enough to jump on a call with me one time just not even his podcast but to just meet me because i i basically begged him um and we talked about this thing uh, like identity so athletes You know, for example, today's professional athletes, they're in their mid to late 20s, early 30s. In Jan's case, I guess, 40s. But then you come to this place where your identity is so wrapped up in one thing. You are the athlete who has gone and done these things for you. It's been winning six world titles and, you know, this and the other. Um, And... I, I'm curious, whenever you had that shift, and like you're still in the sport, like some people, I talked talk to Scott Tenley. he's not really involved as much in the sport. He took a completely different shift, and he didn't struggle with this identity thing at all. Did you ever struggle with reinventing yourself when you got past the prime physical age for these types of sports, or was it not an issue for you?
1: No, I, I didn't have, for me it was a pretty easy transition, and part of it was because I, I knew that being an athlete was only part of who I am as a person and there's mm-hmm. there's other aspects of life that have equal importance even though when I was competing that took up the bulk of my time and I also and so when I retired it, it was a very simple clear decision I knew it was time to move on and there's not one day where I where I thought gee I wish I'd done more one more race or whatever and you know I to be honest I'm in a pretty unique position because i i accomplished just so much more than i ever could have imagined that i would have had when i first started in doing triathlons and i you know when i was getting close to the final days of my career i actually i spoke with one of my close people that i worked with at nike who was one of my my sponsors and i said what what's the difficult most difficult thing you've seen for athletes when they exit. And this gentleman said the bit, the most difficult thing is that a lot of athletes have a hard time going from being the best at something to whatever's next and, and when they go to that next thing they're not going to be the best. Maybe they will, but in the beginning they're not going to be the best at it. Mm. And and a lot of them just, you know, their egos or whatever just can't handle that like yeah. you know they, they they crave that thing where they want to be actually the best at something. And so right when i transitioned out of the sport i realized okay whatever it is that i'm doing next i'm not going to be super good at at least in the beginning and maybe never and there may never be anything where i can actually put that label on it like you are the best on this day at whatever it is that you're doing
2: yeah
1: and and um so so i was prepared to kind of eat humble humble pie you know and <clears throat> one of the one of the first things that took place when i um exited was that i was doing some corporate speaking and um i got a an eight city tour for honeywell uh oh, wow and so i and there was a production company that helped me set up this whole talk that crafted a bunch of stuff together and tied into what honeywell was trying to target and all that kind of stuff and i had done a little bit of corporate speaking you know and but i knew that this was going to be a challenge like I could talk in front of athletes and two athletes because Mark Allen, six-time Ironman champ, and you know, yeah. I could the just platform get up there.
0: Precedes you. It's there.
1: Yeah, I, I could just get up there and say whatever I wanted, and they'd be like, Ooh, ah, that's yeah. amazing, dude. You know. <laughs> but I knew that the the business people are gonna be like, What the hell? You swam yeah. bike and ran on your speedo and you're <laughs> like eight <laughs> hours doing that shit, you know. And so I just I, I knew it was gonna be a tougher audience, and I got up there. And the the first couple that I gave, I go, okay, that was really bad. You just, you you didn't nail it at all. And you got nervous. And each time you blow it and don't hit the mark, it makes it hard. It's making it harder. And uh, so I thought, okay, where do I, what space do I put myself in so that I just flow and that I'm just... I'm doing a good job, you know, maybe not the best speaker in the world, but maybe at least the best that I can do. And so I realized it was I was kind of trying to win the race in a sense, in the sense of. If I get up there and the main thing I'm focused on is whether or not these people like what I do, that's kind of like saying if I'm going to enter this race and I'm either going to win it or I'm not. And I have no ultimate control over whether the people like what I deliver or not. And I realized my job when I get up there is to deliver a speech that is the best that I can give. And that's sort of like going into a race saying, yeah, I want to win. But ultimately, the thing I want to do is to have the best race that I can. And so the last two of those talks, I finally found that space where it's like, I'm just going to get up there and give the best speech that I can give. And maybe two people will like it, maybe half the audience will like it, maybe nobody will. Sure. Or maybe there might be a, a nugget in there that's, that, that sparks something in somebody and they go, oh, oh I mm-hmm. got it, yeah. And uh, that was a real shift and that, that, that enabled me ever since that point to get up in front of people when I speak regardless of what the audience is and just flow. You know, yeah. and it's so it's like anything, you know, as an athlete, you want to hit that flow. And you, you can't hit that flow when you're butting up against expectations, because if you're below the expectation, there's a block like, oh, mm-hmm. shoot, I'm not going to hit that place, Very that hard. time, whatever it is. However. If you even no matter where you finish a race or no matter how the talk goes, if you get in the flow and you give the best that you can on that day, something magic does come out of it. And there's more impact through your performance, through your race, through your talk mm-hmm. than had you been shackled by expectation or judgment. Is this good or is it not good? You know, am I, am I, or am I not winning? You know, or whatever it is. And so, yeah, that was a big shift.
0: Yeah. Just going along the lines of that, I've always found it super interesting. So I'm still relatively young. I'm 31. um, And it's been interesting noticing from on the receiving end and the giving end, whether the things that someone has said to me or things that I've said to someone else. It's often things that, for example, and I've, I've given some talks before. Um, people that have come up to me and shared stuff, oftentimes even years later, that was impactful is something that I wasn't even necessarily planning. It was almost like an afterthought, something that came out and it really impacted them. And likewise, some of the greatest people who've had impacts on my life, I've shared with them a few times, something that was super impactful for me and they had no remembrance of it. And they were like, wow, I actually said that? Interesting. So I always find it super fascinating how when you're in those opportunities of influence, it's, it's, I guess, encouraging, but also daunting at the same time. You never know what exactly is going to stick, but likely something will stick for that person. And it's often only a 10-second window or an action or something like that. And it like really does sometimes make an a impact and shift for that person in the way that they do things. So I always found that super interesting. I don't know if you've experienced that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, <clears throat> I've had people over the years come up and say, you inspired me because of... You know and they they give their reasons and yeah um it's it's really cool and and it ultimately you know it d- doesn't matter who we are if we if we are um doing the best that we can we're gonna we're going to create positive impact on others you know like and, and it, it it doesn't have to be in a huge big public way you know like i <clears throat> just a an example of that i was yeah. Uh this is an example of me being influenced by somebody else. I was uh I was gonna be giving a talk in, in Thailand to uh a group of coaches who, who were they had a development program for coaches, not only endurance athletes, but for strength trainers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, you know, the first night I was there I was at the hotel and it was in Bangkok and um I needed I needed something in the room you know that wasn't there and I called up and and uh one of the staff came and this woman gave me whatever it was and just the way she presented me with the towel or the soap or whatever it was it was so different than anything I'd experienced like she was offering Mm -hmm. this to me like in service like here allow me to serve this to you and it wasn't like you know, sometimes you you you, have, you that happens and somebody comes up and they practically throw it at you because it's like Yeah, thanks you know, for the inconvenience. Inconvenience then that they had to break their routine to do something to for you, yeah. right? And it's like, wow. Impactful. that was just done out of like this servitude, which provided gratitude and, and um I realized, you know, if you do something in service for someone else with no no strings attached. It's such a beautiful experience. And so here's this person that in no way was in a public thing. You know, she's not up on stage. She's not doing a race. She's not on a news program. Yeah, she's she's not, not giving a corporate talk. But it affected me. It touched me in a, in a very unique way. And hmm. so it doesn't matter what we're doing. If we do it kind of in the right way, it's going to have a cool effect. Yeah, for sure. Why not?
0: Thanks Thanks for sharing that story. That's really cool. Um. So... The next part, I would love for you to compare and contrast your growth in triathlon with um, your growth in public speaking. Did you find parallels and encouragements? Were there things similar? Did you grow on the same trajectory and growth curve to becoming the best speaker of all time, along with the best (laughs) Ironman of all time? Like what was, did you uh, compare and contrast those?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm not going to put myself in the category of best speaker of all time. I, I, I've have become the best speaker I can be, but that's certainly, that certainly doesn't mean that I'm the best at that, for sure. Um, you know, the, the, the commonalities are as the, is, is that throughout my career as an athlete, I evolved. You know, I changed, I improved, I, I learned, I gained from experience, I gained from difficult times when things didn't work out the way I'd hoped, and, and the same with speaking. You know, it's, it's been an, an evolution Uh, to get to the point where I am today and and the comfort level with what I do with that. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think anytime you feel like you've gotten it all figured out, that's a slippery slope. And and that's, you know, I I saw that with with athletes I competed against. They would win a big race and they think, oh, I've got that all figured out. And so next year I'm going to come back and I'm going to do the same thing that I did this year. Well, last year's race is easy to figure out how you're going to win it. This year's race is going to be completely different. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, people ask me, well, how did you, know, it took, when you did Ironman, you, the first six years, you didn't win it. Second, six years, you raced it, you, you won. So you figured it out. And I go, well, I figured out parts of it. But the reason I was able to come back five more times after that first win and win five more Was that I came into each of those next five knowing, like, yeah, you've figured something out, but you're still going to have to discover what it's going to take to win this year. Mm. and Be willing to adjust, adapt, find another piece of yourself that you never knew was in there to be able to pull it off. And, and again, a lot of athletes didn't allow themselves that evolution or weren't willing to... um, go into it with that sense of, like, I don't know if you want to call it innocence or humility to to go, you know what?
0: I don't got it all figured out.
1: I don't have it all figured out. I'm going to have to still figure it out, even though I know a lot of stuff now that I didn't before I won. I've got to figure it out again. And that's sometimes that can be daunting, you know, to to go, oh, good God, I've got to I've got to figure it out again. I don't have it all figured out. I can't just like pull it out of the bag and go yeah. there <laughs> simple. Yeah.
0: yeah, for sure. It's, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with my um, youngest sister who just started in, in college. She's a freshman, and we were just talking about a number of different things. And I was trying to bestow upon her some of my sage advice for doing well in college, and she was having none of it. And I just realized, oh, I remember being there. Um, and I remember, I thought I had it all figured out and I needed no one's advice and the world was mine to conquer, but yeah, it's, and then I, I joined actually in college, a, um, acrobatics team. Um, Mm. it wasn't like super competitive, but we traveled actually like around North and South America and even some internationally, we did some stuff. Um, but anyway, my, the greatest one liner I ever got from my coach who was like, a, he went to world's competitions and doing like men's trio and other stuff. He's like really strong acrobat. Um, he said when I was asking him about who was going to make the team next year. And he's like, well, who, who's ever is coachable? Cause it wasn't even necessarily to him about who was the best athlete who could come in there and just lay up the best floor routine. He's cause they could be the best athlete. And he, I watched him turn down some incredible athletes, but because they weren't coachable, he's like, no, mm-hmm. like they're not, they're not a fit. That stuck with me forever. And that, that was like, but when I was still a goon of an idiot and, but it really impacted me and I've kind of held on to that. I was like, I got to always stay coachable because my personality is one that likes to be a little overconfident, you know, kind of waxing over the inner, um, just lack of confidence that really is there that I think a lot of people probably feel, but yeah, it mm. was, it was super interesting.
1: Um, well, nobody wants to, you know, everybody wants to feel like you got life wired and, yeah. uh, you know, you've got the answer to, to everything, or I should, I just shouldn't say everybody, but, you know, you kind of want to have that feeling of proficiency in life, no matter what it is that you're doing, and like, oh, I don't have it all figured out, you know, and so it, yeah, being coachable is, uh, not everybody is super coachable, Uh, some people, um, And we also also me, you know, I do like to figure stuff out myself, some things out myself. And it sometimes it's actually hard for me to reach out and say, hey, I need help because there's a certain vulnerability with that. Uh, But, you know, like as an athlete, I had a team around me because I knew that I couldn't be an expert in all the things that I needed to be to be a great athlete. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, so I had somebody helping me with nutrition, with physiology, with mindset, with fixing my bike you know just all that stuff and then it was my job to take all of that expertise that others had that they had sort of infused into me and put it all together on race day okay you know like the gun goes off that's my time they've done their work now it's my time to pull it all together and uh you know in in a sense if i can do that then i'm giving back to them for all that energy they put into me
0: yeah um I'm curious, because earlier we, and I kind of glossed over it, but you getting into triathlon for the first time, you said you got fourth at that race, and that was kind of a big shift in how how you approach things mentally. That wasn't your very first triathlon, was it? It was. Wow. What triathlon was that?
1: It was an Olympic distance race in San Diego. There was a series, Olympic distance race series back then called USTS, United States Triathlon Series, and they stopped in a lot of key mark. Key cities throughout the United States. That was actually their very first event, and the event took place literally like three miles or two miles from where I was living at the time. Oh, so I knew the area, um, and and a lot of the the top athletes in the world back. This was in 1982. A lot of the top athletes were living in that area. So, um, it, you know, as a, I I w- as a swimmer. I don't. I don't have the levers to be a good swimmer. You know, my arms aren't aren't like Michael Phelps. Like yeah. very few people what are. What is anyway. your height, if you don't mind me asking? I'm, I'm six feet. Okay. Um, I don't have the natural shoulder flexibility to have a super efficient stroke. You know, and so, but swimming for twelve years, pretty diligently, built a pretty good cardiovascular engine inside. And then when I saw when I started doing triathlon in 1982. Right away, I saw that cycling and running were super easy for me. Like, my levers are put together to generate force and generate speed very, very easily in those two sports. And so, even though it was a shock, it was, I could see, like, oh, well, yeah, maybe I do have a little talent here. But of course, I'm in that first race. I still was not thinking, like, oh, dude, you can be a world champion. I was just yeah. thinking, wow, this is actually. Easier to do well at than I thought it would be.
0: Yeah. Did you grow up doing um, collegiate sports or, I mean, you said you did some swimming, if I'm not incorrect. I, I, yeah, I swam in college. from the
1: time I was 10 all the way through senior in college. Okay. And, and at that point, I was 22. And back then, I sort of thought, well, that's, that's the peak of my life fitness. I will never be this fit again ever, you know, because in, in those days... First of all, there was nowhere for a swimmer to go after you're 22. Right. And second of all, you know, there was no, wh- how would I possibly be this fit again in the rest of my life? And so two years later, when I started doing triathlon, I was 24. Um, w- well, actually, I should back up. Uh, shortly before I did that first, for, before I saw the Ironman on TV in in 1982, and it, mm-hmm. that's what inspired me to take up the sport and and just see if I could go do Ironman and finish it. I I did a 10 K in San Diego with, with my then girlfriend. And, um, so I was like, you know, I was 23 or 24 and, you know, I thought, well, I'm past my prime. So, you know, I had these guys that were like twice my age who were running faster than me. And so there was that little light bulb that went on. Like, what these old dudes are like, crushing me maybe maybe there is athletic life after 22 and so that just sort of got the got the ball rolling right and then the thing that really um solidified it for me that maybe there is a lot of life after 22 athletically was watching carlos lopes win the, the gold medal in the marathon uh and i think that was whatever la olympics he was late 30s at the time 38 or something like that yeah and so i'm like wow maybe there really is life after 22 athletically and fitness wise and health wise and of course now we're we're seeing that you know jan right. ferdino you 42 know, yeah over 40 42 you know winning a big race this year and uh so yeah the, it it's just cool to see where we can go with what we have uh, if we take care of ourselves and if we're consistent you know at at 65 my my athleticism is based around consistency it's not based around absolute performance so Mm -hmm. i don't care how fast i am or how much endurance or strength i have it's more like each day i I just want to see like what can i do today
0: yeah, super interesting. It's interesting you actually shared about that how you got that light bulb click after the um marathon winner. What was his name again?
1: Carlos Lopes, Portugal.
0: Carlos Lopes, Portugal. Do you remember his time?
1: I don't remember his time. Um he had, he had set a world's record I think in the 10k and then also in the marathon at one point right around that time. So but it was just like, wow, here's a guy in his late 30s and he's he's yeah, crushing, crushing it. it.
0: That's amazing, yeah, yeah. So I just recorded another podcast with a friend, uh, Derek Stone, and he's thirty five and just decided to take his pro card. and, and The main motivation was he because he thought, "Oh, I'm too old." But then he saw Jan win the PTO, and like that gave him the spur to like go forward with it. So yeah, it's neat to see that kind of stuff happen. Because when I got into the sport, I was like twenty seven and i was like oh i got a few years but then i saw like that Jan won in like 2019 or whatever it was at 39 i was like oh, i got more than a decade let's get on this train
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> so right
0: like, it's a good shock um so tell me about your life chapters 1 6 21 and infinity i read about this online
1: yeah my business partner scott zagarino who's also been involved with the sport forever and uh he's really good at um, sort of coming up with cool ideas. And he sent me this thing one day and he goes, what are these numbers? One, six, and then the infinity sign. And I'm like, I don't know, is that like code for the end of the world or something? You know, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and he goes, that's that's your resume. And I'm like, that's my resume. And he goes, yeah, the one is the, the first ever um, ITU, olympic distance world champion that took place in 1989 in avignon france it was the first ever olympic distance world championship and that was like the first big stone that got put in place that eventually led to triathlon getting into the olympics in sydney in 2000. the six were your six ironman wins the 21 were the number of races that you won in a row over a two-year period undefeated streak 21 races at all distances from Olympic all the way up to Ironman and even a a duathlon or two in there. And then the infinity is uh, you being voted uh, in a worldwide poll by ESPN, being voted the greatest endurance athlete of all time. That title will never be given to anybody else. And I'm like, well, that's... That is some kind of resume, huh?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you have <laughs> you that know, people have, on
2: your armor?
1: Yeah, no, and then people ask me, you know, like, how did you win Kona six times, or how did you win the Nice International Triathlon ten times and ten starts? And I said, I just won it one race at a time. You know, there was no master plan saying, "Oh, was... I'm going to win. I'm going to win all these races." You know, it was just one year after another after another, and like I said, continually trying to become a better version of myself each year that I showed up and, and then finally, you know when I did my Final army Man in 1995, I knew that no matter how I finished that year, that was gonna be the best that I could bring into it. I, I had pulled everything out of my bag of tricks that I wanted to try to see to, if, if I could get just that little bit better. and so I, I really felt like, you know this is the best this is the best I'm gonna be able to put out and so why really? Come back, move on to something else where you can then continue to learn and evolve and put better versions of yourself into it. Yeah. And so, again, you know, going back to one of your very first questions, it was it was very clear for me when it was time to move on. And, and with that clarity, it was very there was no attachment or no thinking, oh, gee, I wish I'd you know, yeah. done one more race. Yeah. So do you still race? Do you ever no. race for fun? <laughs> Not at all. No, I, tell, I tell people, uh, you know, I go, to, I go to the Ironman every year, and I just actually got back two nights ago from this yeah. race.
0: I was watching your videos.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, people go, do you miss racing? And I go, no. They go, why don't you come back? And I go, it would ruin this great retirement I got going. <laughs> <laughs> so what do
0: you do to stay active? Like, I would assume that's still important to you.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I try to exercise every day. I pretty much do. Uh, when I'm home, I live in Santa Cruz, California, and I love surfing. And so I oh, yeah. I surf most days. If there's surf, I go out. Uh, and then I also ha- have seen the importance of strength training, especially as I age. And so that's something that I'm very consistent with. I do, you know, I have my bike set up on a stationary trainer, and I, I use that for a lot of the cardio that I do. And and I, I actually do a lot of walking. Uh, I, I find that, you know, it's really good. It's very soothing for my nervous system. It gives me that chance and that opportunity to just kind of yeah. walk around and daydream and, and you know there's a lot of nice trails and, and mm-hmm. I live like I said right by the ocean I can just walk along the cliffs where I live and so I, I mix it up but I'm also very just very consistent
0: yeah the bilateral stimulation does a lot there's a lot of studies like for uh, EMDR therapy I actually did some of that but to process through things trauma or otherwise um walking or swimming literally any of the the triathlete sports um as long as you have that bilateral movement it really does facilitate like a lot of positive processing so that's pretty pretty Mm. good stuff i love walking yeah do you like go hiking do you travel around get up to the redwoods or go out to joshua tree and do any of that type of stuff
1: not really but i i travel a lot and so when i'm yeah you see a lot somewhere i always try to get out and walk around and see what's going on and see what's available and uh you know when i when i do go on vacations it's always somewhere with a natural setting like i you know my goal would not be to go to las vegas for a vacation you know it's to, (laughs) to, to go to somewhere beautiful and amazing inspiring in nature yeah
0: yeah for sure have you done the grand canyon rim to rim yet
1: Dude, that's, like,
0: too difficult. You yeah, know come I mean? on. <laughs> like, <woo! laughs> no, you could do it. Oh, man. I, so I've attempted it twice. One time someone got injured, and then the second time I got COVID, so it didn't happen. So I'm know. going out for a third time probably this winter. But even the little bit I have done, it's just such an awe-inspiring thing because it looks so vast when you're up on top and you're looking over and you're like, is that real? Because like, you can't really get a depth of feel for mm-hmm. miles deep. And, yeah, you get down inside there, and, and again, it just, like, really – shows me oh i am this big i am yeah. fly
1: yeah no i i've only actually been to the grand canyon once and it was in the winter and um the trails were Trish. completely covered with ice yeah <clears throat> and so there there was no way you could even even think about walking down in it but talk about vast beyond anything that your your brain can wrap itself around yeah 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 that's yeah, amazing
0: so just a few more questions, and then let you go. Um, first one: What is the hardest thing you've ever had to overcome?
1: Um, <clears throat> I would say the hardest thing that I, one of the hardest things I've had to overcome is. Uh, one is very vague. It's like a <clears throat> when I <clears throat> excuse me when I was younger. I kind of had like a <clears throat> excuse me when I was younger, I kinda had like a' oh, it's never gonna work out kind of mentality
2: mm-hmm.
1: like oh, my life's never gonna work out i you know i'm I'm never gonna be happy you know whatever it is and and so it's that sort of was like muck that was stuck on everything that I was doing, so even things that were positive i don't think i fully appreciated how positive they were at that time because i kind of had to sing like oh my life's never going to work out and so and and that sort of manifested in a sense with the challenge that i had to actually become iron man well champ because if i could win the iron man that would mean that i had hit the pinnacle i had hit the peak and there was no higher higher mountain to climb but i had that muck of oh my life's not going to work out like I don't deserve to win that. Somebody else does and I'm not worthy of that win and, mm-hmm. and so in, in 1989 as I was going over to the island something shifted and I had this feeling like maybe maybe you'll never win it but that's okay. You actually are worthy of being the one to be in that lead, in the lead of that race, and to cross that line in first place,
2: hmm.
1: and it was a, it was a big, um, it was a big mantle to feel like. I I I would be worthy, you know. I I as a person. Could, could own that title and honor it in 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 a way that it should be honored, <clears throat> and I, you know I, I think a lot of times. People have a have a, a challenge with that, like am I deserving of something great to take place in my life? Not not take place like it's owed me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but that if I if I work for it and I achieve it, that I am worthy of that. Mm. And so that was <clears throat> that was a hard one to overcome. Um and, and, and as far as sort of keeping going, you know, the first, like I said, the first six years, I didn't win in in Kona. And so I had, um, I had a lot of years where I was in the lead, but then I would, something would happen, I'd fall apart, Dave Scott would win. And picking up the pieces from those, each of those six, sometimes it was easy, but sometimes it was so challenging. Like, you know, I dedicated an entire year to this goal, and I fell short. And so, you know, at some point when you keep falling short, you have to ask yourself, is it because, is it because I'm doing something wrong or is it because the goal that I'm after is just not achievable for me? Mm. You know, it's, it's so worthy to dream big, but sometimes those big dreams, they're just not going to manifest for you as a person, but. So maybe 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 the goal itself is wrong or maybe the the reason you want to accomplish that goal is wrong. Maybe what you're trying to get out of it isn't the right isn't what you're supposed to get out of it. And so again in 1989 it was it was hard to get myself to to think a seventh try. And so then I really I shifted why I was going back. I was trying to win. I'm like, "You know what? Forget that. Mm. Who cares?" Yeah. You know? I might have the best day ever and somebody else is still going to be better than me. So what has purpose and meaning? And so when I went there in 89, I really, the 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 goal was really to finally put together a really, really solid swim, bike and run. And however it turned out, yeah. that's fine. That's going to yeah. be okay. And so that was, that was a big shift also. But, you know, I've, I've had, you know, those personal things that are, difficult like every single person you know I had a had a tough relationship with my father and I didn't feel like I got that guidance and nurturing uh, that a son should receive from their father you know and so that was hard to overcome I I was married and got divorced and the divorce was very challenging and in, in getting to a point where you know my my ex-wife and I actually have a good relationship now and uh you know i mean everybody everybody has a story there's there's no person on this planet that if you sit down with them isn't going to have a good story and and it's so easy to look at that's a great line I'm it's, it's yeah it's so easy to look at oh look at jan Fredano. he's got it all under you know he's got it all in in there mirinda carfrey or you know you you name the person yeah, if you dig deep, you'll you'll find a shocking story. Like, yeah. wow, you had to deal with that. You know, you're you're a person like everybody else, and and I and that's sort of part of like when people compete at the Ironman World Championship. You know, they go home and they kind of get depressed. Yeah, like Something that like post race depression thing. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I go, that's because you you've had this huge focus that has this amazing energy with it. You know, when you have 2000 people at this event, that's so challenging and you're all at 150% of your best, that creates an energy that will never be, it's, there's, there's not a lot that can match that. And when you go home, you've got to take out the trash and you've got to do your dishes and you've (laughs) got to make your bed, you know, and you've got to pay your bills. And, that's probably not quite as exciting as crossing the Ironman finish line. Yeah, but for true. me, I I actually loved that deep contrasting balance. Like I loved getting ready for the Ironman, and I loved coming home, and just waking up in the morning and having a cup of coffee.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so then to kind of wrap things up. So I was talking with Scott t- Scott Tenley on one of our very first episodes. Um, and I would assume he's, he's not only a competitor, but a friend. And he told me, uh, about the insane training volume and the just lack of attention to, and just lack of education um, when it came to like heart rate training and you're just going out hard and you're going forever and there's like no recovery days. And he was sharing that quite a few of his friends have had like serious heart problems, um, because of that, that, that time. How do you feel about that? Like today? And do you think... Well, first of all, do you have any friends who are like struggling with that? Are you struggling with that? And then the second part of the question is, do you think that we're doing a good enough job today, like protecting athlete health, especially at the elite performance level over, um, you just like saying performance above all?
1: Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, no, I don't do not have any heart issues. Yes. I have a lot of professional athlete ex ex professional athlete friends who have struggled with that issue i have a lot of good age group athlete friends who have struggled with heart issues are we doing a good enough job at um sort of protecting athletes at all levels from overdoing it absolutely not you know look at look at the number of athletes who whose performances are are up and down they have a great race and then they're injured or some they have a health issue that that holds them back and yeah. they're kind of out of the scene for a while I mean even look at look at Jan Ferdino. you know he he won uh he won in whatever 2016 or something then 2017 um he has the back spasm in the race and he has to walk the marathon 2018 he wins Ironman man 70.3 world championship in south africa which crushes the entire universe and he's looked like he's totally poised to win win a kona win in kona again and he has a he has a stress fracture or something in his hip and he can't even compete you know and and so and you know and he, he went through a number of races prior to the the pto event that he had to cancel out of because of Various health and in, in, in injury issues. You know, Alistair Brownlee,
2: yeah,
1: double yeah. gold medalist, just always struggling with injury. I mean, you can go down the list. There, the the top athletes are not attending to the need for recovery the way they need to to stay healthy all the time. Uh, you know, in my in my career um i raced professionally 15 years i did not miss one race start because of injury or illness i don't think there's many athletes today who can say that and people might say well maybe it was easier back then you know it wasn't easier it's just that i actually saw Er in the first two years that i competed that if I pushed myself all the time, my, I was gonna, my performance was going to be like this. You know, I could have a great race, but then I'd be completely exhausted afterwards and it was hard to come back and, re- and recover. I might get sick and all that kind of stuff. And, and Scott Tinley was right. You know, we, we did this crazy, insane stuff initially um, because there was no guidance. There were no coaches. We had no idea when a lot was too much. Mm. And we, we learned by mistake, by trial and error. And, and at, right toward kind of toward the end of my second year of racing, <clears throat> I was introduced to heart rate training, and I started using that as a way to sort of put up put the the buffer you know to hold back enough so yeah. that um, you know put the governor on the on the machine so that I trained smart and not o- overdid it. And of course, you know, I had my times where I overtrained and I had to Really, back off to get my energy back. But at the same time, I I never, I never had any long term injuries. I don't have any, well, at least in my opinion, I don't have any residual negative effects from the years that I raced. But when I retired, I also never pushed my body. You know, I I never pushed myself. Endurance wise, I never pushed myself anaerobically. I you know I surf, and so there's times where I'm paddling really hard and when I'm completely anaerobic, but then I get back out in the lineup and I'm sitting there and my heart rate drops. So
2: yeah.
1: it's a long way of saying, um, you can do, you can do high level athletics, uh, in a way that's, that's healthy. That's not going to cause you long-term problems if you attend to recovery. And if you attend to not overdoing it too frequently in your training, mm. um, that's not always so easy to do. Like I, when I would compete, I would do, I would race seven to nine times a year. I would only do one, sometimes two Ironmans. Uh, I would do one or two sort of three quarter distance Ironmans. I would do one or two 70.3s and the rest were Olympic distance. Seven to nine races out of in 12 months. That wasn't, that was not overdoing it necessarily. And I also took a long off season from the day I, after Kona in October, all the way until January 1st, there was nothing that I did at, in exercise mode that was geared toward gaining fitness. It was all geared toward moving just because it felt good to be just outside.
0: Feel, just getting out and spending. Yeah, you know,
1: I, I would go surf. I would ride my ba- bike maybe once a week for an hour or twice a week for an hour. I would, I would run a couple days a week, but just super short, like 30 minutes, 35 minutes, just to stay active but there wasn't anything that was targeting fitness and so i really took two or two and a half months to put all of that adrenal energy back into my system that deep those deep energy reserves that get drawn on when you race at, at a super high level and i think because of that i was able to keep improving over all those 15 years that i raced that's why I was able to not be injured. That I was able to get the start line in every race that I had planned. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've, it's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast uh that on Life." I don't know if you know if you know Eric Lagerstrom and Paula Finley. Um, so they oh, yeah. have, yeah. So they have their podcast. Of course, I should know. Literally, so I come from like a deeply religious background, and we there's always this joke. It's like everybody in this church world knows each other. It's the same way in triathlon I'm finding out. Like everybody <laughs> knows everybody to the nth degree. So anyway, um, Paula was talking about taking an off season and I've been struggling internally cuz I'm my goal is to get my elite card, race a few good races against people who I know, obviously get demolished and then like, you know, that was that was my goal. And so I'm like, do I need to like take an off season? What does that really look like? And my coach has been pushing me like, you know, you should back off a few for at least a couple weeks and I'm like, no, I want to keep going. sorry um but anyway paula was saying like you know they they don't no one really that i can find takes like a legitimate off season where you're like doing what you're talking about and i know i wonder if it's because we're all afraid i'm obviously fairly uneducated in this space still like i'm very new very green um but i'm like afraid to take an off season and in like really pull it back off the i pull it back on the intensity but like in terms of like volume i'm like oh maybe i should maybe i shouldn't so I guess what I'm saying is maybe this conversation will inspire me to actually do that so that next year can hopefully have, hopefully have more of a, you know.
1: Yeah. You know, an off-season doesn't mean you sit on the couch and sure. do nothing. you But you have to, in my opinion, you have to decondition in the off-season to then be able to go back up to oh, a, a higher level the following year. You can't hit that peak. Come down just a little bit, you know, take two weeks easy and then, OK, it's time to get back at it. And I and I see this all the time on, on Instagram from the top pros, like like they finished the last big race. And then literally somewhere between two and three weeks later, they're going, well, it's time to get back at it. You know, yeah, I'm getting 2024. out there. <laughs> yeah, 2024 is coming up. And it's like stupid. You have to. It... <clears throat> You know, the, the part of recovery that people don't really, um, n- nobody, nobody seems to address, uh, I did, but others don't seem to, is that, <clears throat> like I said, you know, you, you have these deep energy reserves in your body that you draw on <clears throat> when you are pushing your body to the limit, when you're taking your genetics and getting everything out of it that you can. Like if you just go through a race and you don't really go hard, you can do a ton of racing, and it's not going to have a negative effect. But if you're pushing, you're drawing on these deep energy reserves, and it's kind of like it's kind of like pumping water out of the out of out of uh, the water tables underneath underneath the ground, right? Like you mm-hmm. suck all this water out, <clears throat> and you think, okay. And then a storm comes, and you think, okay, we got there's two inches of rain, so that deep water, those those water tables, they all got filled up. Well, no, it takes. Storm after storm after storm, and it slowly that, that water seeps down and it fills the water tables back up. That's kind of like those deep energy reserves that you have in your body. You suck them dry and you take two weeks off, you fill the tank back up maybe one or two percent. Your you don't fill it up 100 percent. Yeah, and, and also, when you get really depleted, you know, your, your energy is sucked out of you. When, you. when it starts to come back up five or ten percent, you go, Oh, I'm back because compared, yeah, feel, yeah. compared to where you were, you think I'm back. But if you actually sort of keep on in chill mode, all of a sudden, a couple of weeks later, you're like, wow, I actually feel way better. And I was nowhere near fully recovered. And, and so there's that aspect of that deep energy that that everybody either does has no clue about or is just ignoring. Yeah. And so that's where, yeah, like Paula said, she is 100% accurate. People don't take true off-seasons. Yeah.
0: So I have just one more question, and I'll let you go because now I'm being selfish. So okay. in training, training like, a, let's say averaging 19 hours a week, if I'm going to go do an off-season and I'm going to start this, like, next week, would you say as a coach pull it back to a number of hours, or is it just I'm not going to do any structure, just go by feel, what you want to do, do it? Like, how would you do that as a coach to directing an athlete?
1: At 19 hours, you know, I'd probably cut it back to half that, first of all. Um, do very little that's high intensity at all. Like, don't, if you go hard, it's just because you're with a bunch of people, you know, a group of training people and you're just having fun, but don't have it be a, fu- a, pur- a purpose of the workout. Like, okay, today I've got to go do a hard workout. Yeah. And and then, And then mix it up with activities that, that are not necessarily swim, bike run. Like, you know, there's maybe you do hike. What's that pickleball? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe pickleball, you know, maybe surfing. I heard the surf's way up in Chattanooga. Um, you know,
0: yeah. Right on the river,
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know, do, do things that where you're moving your body, maybe in different ways than you normally do. And that also builds uh, some strength. Like, there's a seventy point three in Pucan, Chile. It's every January. and uh, one of one of the cool things there is there's a, a, a this huge glacier covered volcano just outside where the race is in this beautiful lake. Mm, sure, and gorgeous. so uh, we would do the race, and then the next day we would go hike up the volcano to the top because it's, it's an active volcano and, and you could get to the top and look in and see the caldera with like this orange, just bubbling lava, you know, yeah, otherworldly. But anyway, it was, it was almost an eight hour up and back hike and you know, you have crampons and stuff. And so, you know, here you are the day after 70.3 doing this eight hour hike, which is super slow, but it's like doing Stairmaster for eight hours. And so it would give my body this strength that just there's no way swimming, biking, and running would do. And every year that I did that, I had really good years. And part of it was I think just because I did this one-time wacko, crazy thing, and then recovered from it. And, and mm-hmm. that's something else you can do in the off season. You know, you can do like the one-off, absolutely ridiculously challenging thing. You're not going to do that every day. You're going to do it once in the off season. Yeah. And the, those sort of like way out of the box, kind of like crazy athletic things. Yeah. It's not something that you train for, but something that you do like that. It, it'll give you a, a strength that you'll that there's no way you can get otherwise. And again, recover from it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Swimming in the off season. Did you did you try to maintain any type like a volume like five thousand a week, ten thousand yards?
1: Well, I surfed, so I, I didn't get in the pool at all. Oh, I'm. So
0: yeah, you're still using it.
1: Yeah, you know, I had literally I would have about two months out of the pool, but you oh. know, I came from a swimming background, so
0: yeah, you you know the feel for the water.
1: I knew longer. I knew the feel. If if I if I hadn't grown up as a swimmer uh, and I wasn't surfing, yeah, I'd would get in the pool. You know, s- swimming's great for your body. That's yeah. it's soothing, Files. it's relaxing. But I, you know, I. Again, if I would do a workout, uh, I would recommend, you know, if you do masters dropping down a lane or two into this, you know, longer intervals so that you can just, (laughs) you can just kind of cruise it. You can focus on stroke mechanics instead of speed. Yeah. That kind of thing.
0: Good deal. Well, Mark, thank you so, so much on behalf of me and everyone in this community, uh, for just paving the way to allow us to grow this sport but to learn from a lot of the crazy mistakes that you guys made and um and then obviously be inspired by the amazing performances thank you so much for that and super grateful to have you here on the podcast to hear your story you're welcome Thank you so much to Mark for jumping on this episode of the Stupid Questions podcast. It was such an awesome time. Um, The longer I do these podcast things, I just I try to keep them to one hour. This one went a little bit longer and I hope that's okay. Um, I just can't get enough of asking questions and just hearing someone from like Mark who has uh, such a wealth of experience and obviously been all over the world and doing speaking engagements on top of racing and working with different athletes. Just an amazing guy. If you made it to this point in the podcast, I want to say thank you so much. If you wouldn't mind giving us a like and subscribe on YouTube, if that's where you're listening, or if you are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of those other ones, if you wouldn't mind giving us a review, that would be super helpful. I just want to give a shout-out to The Rudy Project. Thank you so much to them for sponsoring today's episode as well and for helping us grow. If you want 35% off everything that is Rudy Project, click on the link in the description. You can create your own ambassador account, and you will immediately get 35% off. By the time this airs, it's probably going to be near Black Friday, so you can get probably even more um, percentage off of the gear that way. So check it out. Um, Lastly, if you want to win some free gear, you can... I think I'm actually going to mention this twice. I'm not sure, but I'm going to mention it today. Sign up for our newsletter on the website. It's stupidquestions.show. Check that out, and we will be giving away some stuff before too terribly long. This is my first time doing a real podcast of this caliber, uh, so we're figuring things out. So if you have any ideas of how to make this podcast better, let me know. Thank you guys so much, and we will catch you in the next one.